Hi, everyone, and welcome to Spill It, the Gwinnett County Public Library's podcast all about YA literature, where two of us love YA and one, sadly, again, does not. I'm Catherine, Teen Services Librarian, and I love YA. I'm Patty, Youth Services Manager, and I love YA. And I'm Sarah, Youth Services Specialist, and though I keep reading these books, <laughs> I still don't love YA. <laughs> Heartbreaking. So let's tell everybody what we're reading right now. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. I am currently reading These Violent Delights by Chloe Gong. Um, I'll give you a really quick synopsis. The year is 1926 and Shanghai hums to the tune of debauchery. A blood feud between two gangs runs the streets red, leaving the city helpless in the grip of chaos. At the heart of it all is 18-year-old Juliet Kai, a former flapper who has returned to assume her role as the proud heir of the Scarlet Gang, a network of criminals far above the law. Their only rivals in power are the White Flowers, who have fought the Scarlets for generations. And behind their every move is their heir, Roma Montagov, Juliet's first love and first betrayal. When the gangsters on both sides show signs of instability culminating in their clawing their own throats out, the people start to whisper, I, I would too, um, <laughs> of a contagion, a madness, of a monster in the shadows. As the deaths stack up, Juliet and Roma must set their guns and grudges aside and work together, for if they can't stop this mayhem, then there will be no city left for either of them to rule. So it is um, a Romeo and Juliet retelling in 1920s Shanghai with rival gangs and monsters. And it's pretty good so far. I, I, I am not super far into it, but I am enjoying it. It is book one of a two-book duology. Sarah, what are you reading? Well, in keeping with the subject today, I am reading a nonfiction book called Marooned in the Arctic, the true story of Ada Blackjack, the female Robinson Crusoe, written by Peggy Caravantes. And this story takes place in 1921. Four men go into the Arctic on a top-secret expedition, an attempt to claim an uninhabited island in Siberia for Great Britain. The men have 23-year-old Inuit woman, Ada Blackjack, who signed on as a seamstress to earn money to care for her sick son. Conditions soon turn dire for the team, and they're unable to kill enough game to survive. Three of the men tried to cross the frozen sea and are never seen again, leaving Ada with one ill team, team member who soon dies of scurvy. So Ada has to survive on her own and learn how to make a boat and learn how to trap and shoot animals and learn how to stay warm in the Arctic. And so I have just started this but already I'm um, impressed with Ada. The author mentions that she was living in Seward, Alaska and decides she needs to go to Nome, Alaska. So she walks with her young son 40 miles. And as somebody who's been to Alaska, I don't know how you walk 40 miles through Alaska, and especially in 1912, because it's very wild with a lot of uh, animals and bad weather and dangerous conditions. So... Ada sounds like a hero to me, so I'm looking forward to reading more about her. What about you, Catherine? I have just started The Silvered Serpents by Roshni Chakshi. It's book two of the Gilded Wolves series. I can't say much about this one yet because, like I said, I just started and really I'm only in the first chapter. But I can say I loved book one, so I'm excited to be finally getting back into this one. Uh, the series follows 
the escapades of a found family of six outcasts. So, Patty, you might like it. Oh, it is on my list of things to read. But they are out to steal a powerful artifact. It kind of reminds me of Leverage. Everyone on the team has like a different strength or ability. They're in, they're doing these heists. Okay, yeah, this is just like rapidly going up my to be read pile because I'm like, oh, wait, I could just toss my book aside and read these because that's everything that I love right there. And like I said, it's historical. The first one takes place in historical Paris. The second one takes place in historical Russia. So in fact, as a matter cool. of fact, I'm going to just stop right now, get my crutches, leave this room, go get that book. <laughs> Patty's out. <laughs> you don't really need to hear what I'm about my nonfiction book, right? <laughs> I really liked it though. Have you read Roshni Chakshi before? I have not. Although randomly one of my friends sat next to her on an airplane and had like a long conversation with her. It's really nice. Really loved her. <laughs> So why don't we get into today's subject, which is nonfiction. I, let's just say right off the top, I like nonfiction. I really like nonfiction because usually if somebody's bothering to write a book about a nonfiction topic, it's because it was pretty interesting. And so I know immediately it's going to be an interesting story, I think. And uh, you get to learn a lot along the way, which is something also that I enjoy. We'll say with all nonfiction, I wouldn't say... All of it is maybe something that's super interesting. It's just something the author is passionate about. <laughs> I think nonfiction is such a broad, such a broad topic. Like, I mean, it, it could be. Well, I agree. Like, I'm not talking about, like, you know, textbooks or coding for dummies and things like that. I'm talking about where somebody finds an interesting story from history or a biography about somebody who was really interesting. I like that kind of book. I can see that. Um, I do think it's interesting that we are a YA podcast doing nonfiction because it has been one of the biggest complaints, I think, um, that I hear is there is not a lot. It's getting better, but there is not a lot of really good nonfiction for teens. Or really for older teens. Yeah. That's what I would agree. I feel like this reads, um, the ones that I've read for today at least, feel more middle school level well in our collection they are okay yeah and I think it's just because that's what's being published because I think older teens are just expected to go into the adult section if they if they want to read right a, a nonfiction book or if, they, if they're doing research or something um I know a lot of teens who've read like the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks which is technically an adult book but it it definitely has teen appeal a, a good nonfiction book can really be read by anybody like it shouldn't be something that's like inaccessible and so I think that they in the in my two that I'm going to talk about they've sterilized some of the facts I think for younger readers and that's why I think it was classified as YA or teen fic or teen nonfiction. interesting what did you read well the first one I want to talk about is called No Better Friend and the subtitle is A Man, a Dog and Their Incredible True Story of Friendship and Survival in World War II and this was written by Robert Weintraub and this is a story of a um, British soldier named Frank Williams but more importantly it's a story about a, a dog, a pointer dog named Judy and how she belongs to the British Navy at during World War II or, and uh, over in Asia. And she ends up 
the ship that she's on gets sunk and she is rescued and gone to a deserted island with a bunch of other survivors off these ships that have been um, bombed by the Japanese and she ends up helping the survivors on the island live and then they get off the island and get back to the mainland and then ultimately Judy ends up in a POW camp and where she meets Frank who's also there and it talks about how she survives that because um, she was in constant threat of the Japanese just wanting to shoot her. So she learns a lot of tricks and with Frank's help on how to hide on order and disappear and steal food because the prisoners are starving often. And um, uh, ultimately gets classified as a POW herself. I think the only canine POW was Judy. So this talks about this book is about how she and Frank survive World War II. Okay, I was about to ask, she, does she die? Well, it is a book about a dog, and so we know that dogs usually die in books about dogs. She dies in this book? She makes it out of Japan, let's say that. Sumatra, actually, is where they were. I actually just read a story about this on Facebook, so as you were saying that, I was like... <gasps> I just yeah. read about Judy. Yeah, so it's cool. That's one of the things I love about nonfiction is if you like what you read, you can look up more facts. So like when you guys read those fiction books and you're like, I wish I knew more about that character. Well, guess what? You can go <laughs> learn more about these characters because they're not characters. They're real people and animals. I and don't you can sound go find like that. Facts. <laughs> you're, you're right. You do not sound like that. One of the things I like about nonfiction, including this book, is that in it, the stakes are high and, and they're real. And you you don't know if the hero is going to make it to the end of the book because it's a real life story and we don't have guarantees. Catherine, I think you also read a book about World War II for one of your picks. So Yeah, the one I'm talking about is Seized by the Sun by James W. Ure. It's part of the Women in Action series. This one is mostly a biography of the pilot Gertrude Tompkins, but also gives a pretty concise history of the WASPs, which is the Women Air Force Service Pilots from World War II, and is also part Unsolved Mystery. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't realize that there were uh, female pilots in World War II. So World War II is an area of history I'm actually interested in, so I decided to give this one a try. And I had never heard of the WASPs. The WASPs, while not allowed in active combat, did test flights on fighter planes, trained other pilots, helped with target practice, and ferried planes from one base to another. I learned that the WASPs, while including the name Air Force in their title, were not actually part of or recognized as part of the official military. It wasn't until 1977 that they were finally recognized by Congress. And in 2002, the first WASP was allowed internment in Arlington National Cemetery. These burial privileges were removed in 2015, but were later reinstated in 2016. So I think it's crazy that I was never taught about these courageous women and that I had never even heard of the unit. So I was glad that you hadn't heard of it either. No. Well, I'm not glad, but... (laughs) (laughs) I had heard of them. Okay, good. But then I had also heard, do you know, have you heard of the Night Witches? Yes. Okay. And I will say, I did enjoy this one and did not mind learning something new. But I was also going to say a couple of fiction titles I'd recommend to go along with this nonfiction title is Fly Girl by Sherry L. Smith. It's also about the wasps. And Night Witches by Catherine Lasky, which is more about the Soviet Union's... The Soviet Union Night Witches 
are the bomb. Oh my God. I like, I love this story so much. Are they their female pilots? Yes. yes. And they were allowed in combat. And they were given the crappy planes that nobody else wanted. So the way they would come in is they would have to basically dive in, shut their engines off, glide in, drop their bombs, and get their planes restarted before they crashed. And they were amazing. But yeah. The mystery element of this one is, or unsolved mystery, is that on Gertrude Tompkins' last mission, she basically took off and then disappeared. And to this day, they have not found any wreckage, remains of the plane, or anything. My secret hope, and one that her sister in the book shares, is that she just took the plane, landed somewhere, and had her own life. Because uh, part of her her life was she was kind of forced into a marriage with a man she didn't really love. She was in love with somebody else, but had to honor her family's wishes, basically, or her father's wishes, to marry this guy. So... Interesting. Yeah. So maybe she flew off into so, the sunset. Exactly. Nice. I like it. All right, Patty, what is your title? My book, speaking of things that we did not know about, um, I read from A Whisper to a Rallying Cry, The Killing of Vincent Chin and the Trial that Galvanized the Asian American Movement by Paula Yu. I knew nothing about this. Absolutely nothing. So this was really interesting. In 1982, that was a time when the Japanese car companies were really making big inroads and um, there was a lot of unemployment in Detroit for various and sundry reasons. A lot of the factories were going out of business. A lot of people were, were losing their jobs. And in Detroit, there was a Chinese-American man named Vincent Chin and he was beaten to death at the hands of two white men, auto workers, Ronald Ebbins and his stepson, Michael Nitz. And this book is kind of part true crime, part social sciences. I, that's where we have it located in our collection because it isn't so much focused on the actual killing of Vincent Chan. It's focused on the civil rights movement that this killing um, stirred. And so what happened is these two guys who killed Vincent Chin, Vincent Chin and his friends went out for his bachelor party and they got in a fight with these two guys and they got kicked out of the club. One of the, the white guys went to his car, got a baseball bat. Vincent Chin ran away. He couldn't catch him. The two white guys got in their car. They say they were driving to the hospital, but they saw Vincent Chin sitting on the side of the road. They got out. They attacked him, and one of them beat him to death with a baseball bat. And then the two white guys uh, got, they pled guilty to manslaughter and received a $3,000 fine and three years probation. That's just so many kinds of awful I can't describe. Yeah, I had, I either read or... I watched something about that. And there have been two horrifying. documentaries made that are mentioned in this book that I'm going to go look up that, that sound really good. So, yeah, that, that lenient sentence, um, people got really upset. And this became sort of the first movement that Asian Americans, one kind of kind of called themselves Asian American. Like before that, they were like, well, I'm Chinese American or I'm Japanese American or, you know, and and in this, a bunch of the leaders in this movement came together and they said, you know, we we can't, we have to speak with one voice. 
Um, And so the book is about the movement to get a federal hate crimes trial against these. uh, It wasn't a hate crimes trial at the time. It was a civil rights trial. And they do. And so that that trial is covered in this book as well. And the results and outcomes of that, which I thought was really interesting because it sort of delves into kind of what exactly when you are doing a civil rights trial, what is on trial? Because it wasn't on trial whether he killed Vincent Chin. It was whether he killed them because he was Chinese. And whether his right to be at this strip club was infringed upon by this man. So, and there were two trials actually, uh, because he, the son and the stepson who actually didn't do the killing, he was found not guilty. And the dad who, the one who actually killed Vincent Jen was found guilty on one count and they appealed that. And that was another trial. And there was this whole thing about like evidence that wasn't submitted. And so it was like, it was really an interesting look at how a court case works, which I thought was fascinating. Um, and I think it, it's especially fascinating right now because we've just gone through the McMichaels trial and kind of watching that and seeing. So it was interesting to kind of see sort of how that whole federal hate crimes trial had evolved over time. And even though he was found not guilty and neither one of these people served any time in jail for the killing of Vincent Chin, which is appalling. So this was the first Um, civil rights case that was tried with an Asian American. And even though both of um, the killers were found not guilty, this case changed the justice system. Detroit Free Press journalists John Castine and David Ashfelter wrote an exhaustive six-part investigative series on the manslaughter sentences in Michigan And it changed how manslaughter was done because at that time they said they looked at um, 195 manslaughter cases in Michigan in 1982 and they researched all of them and they found that the sentencing was completely inconsistent. It wasn't unusual for someone to receive a multi-year prison sentence for manslaughter while someone else got off with probation. And it just sort of depended on the judge and what they thought. And I, they don't go into it in this book, but I am willing to bet I would place money on the people who got off with probation were probably tended to be whiter right. than the people who served many years in jail. Um, so they, there was some reform that was done on Michigan law and how they, how they do manslaughter and that you can no longer plea bargain down a second degree murder charge to manslaughter, which I thought was really interesting. And then um, it also changed Congress. This is the Vincent Chen case was one of the cases that led to Congress passing the Victims of Crime Act to provide funding for victim assistance in 1984. And it the Vic, Vincent Chen's federal civil rights trial was the first of its kind for an Asian American citizen. And today they're known as hate crimes. Um, but it was after this that they started actually sort of tracking hate crimes and crimes against Asian Americans 
And then on April 23rd, 1990, the Hate Crime Statistics Act was signed into law by President George H.W. Bush, requiring Attorney General to collect and publish data on hate crimes. And since then, the Department of Justice and the FBI have published a yearly report on hate crime statistics. Roughly half of the hate crimes committed each year since 1991 were motivated by racial bias. It was really interesting, and I, I really liked reading about some of these some of these people I'd never heard of that that went on to be big voices in in the civil rights movement in for Asian Americans. So we're moving from my court case. I believe Catherine, you have also read a true crime court casey nonfiction book. Court Casey, I like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and pretty dark. It's the Borden murders. Lizzie Borden and the Trial of the Century. Bum, bum, bum. Lizzie Borden, man. Okay, I'm going to ask you right now. It's by Sarah Miller. I forgot oh. to mention that. That's very important. Did she kill him? Did she do it? Do you think she did it? What do you think? Well, actually, that goes into my notes. So for those of you who don't know, I'm sh- I feel like most everybody knows about Lizzie Borden. But if it's you a, don't. It's a true crime story about the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden and the case and trial of Lizzie Borden, the younger daughter of the victims. Abby was actually her stepmother. But anyway, uh, while covering the case, you also get background and a deeper look at Lizzie Borden herself, both before, during, and after the trial. And actually, before reading this book, I totally thought she was convicted of the crime, but she was not. She was found not guilty. And so it was fascinating to see the evidence and the investigation that took place in the 19th century. This book also has a bunch of, like, after notes and, like, notes from, like, the trial, transcripts, pictures, all kinds of information in here. So it's pretty fascinating. There are pictures. You do get to see some crime scene photos. You get to see what the skulls looked like. Uh, one of the pictures you get to see Abby, like she's in the room in the picture, laying on the floor on the other side of the bed. Thank you for showing us that, Catherine. I really right. wanted to see something. It's, it's actually like, not that graphic. It's, it's black not. and white, too. I know. So. Yeah. I just woke up thinking today, God, I want to see some crime scene photos. <laughs> well, you're in luck. <laughs> and I, I actually don't know if she did it or not. I find it hard to believe she could have done it and pulled that off with nobody noticing in the amount of time between like it's like 10 minutes where she could have done it how in that time frame where there's not showers or like hoses or like real running water how could she have done that be covered in blood because there's no way you're not covered in blood after swinging an axe into somebody's head how do you wash that off? How do you discard? Of, I mean, how do you get rid of your clothing? How do you leave zero evidence? Mer- I mean, there's definitely, you know, that whole beyond a reasonable doubt. I am not surprised she was found not guilty. Right. And there was no murder weapon found on the premises. So who killed him? No My- idea. You do find out later, like years and years later, on the shed of the house, I think, behind them, they did find a hatchet, which was probably the murder weapon, but it was never tested. My understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that part of the reason that she was not convicted is because at the time, they felt like it was inconceivable for a young girl to commit an atrocious crime like that. No, like, a lot of the people were absolutely positive she had done it. Okay. Like, she was held in, like, jail, basically. This for is the another one I know a lot about from podcasts. <laughs> And some treated her well, some did not. But, I mean, 
she seemed really odd after the trial. But I mean... But I think she was odd all along. She was just one of those people. She was already odd. And if she didn't do it, then her whole family was murdered and she was just put on trial for it, which would, I mean, that would tend to be trauma that would would make me... would leave a mark. Yeah. I mean, how could it not? Right. But the whole thing just seemed really weird to me. I was almost like, did her older sister do it? Was she not actually (gasps) visiting the family uptown or whatever? Catherine solves the crime. You know what I mean? Like, there's just, it could have been anyone. It is, it's very weird. Like, I could totally, I would, that's another one that I could do a deep dive on. Because that's. But I really thought she had been convicted. Just in my, I just thought she had done it. Everybody had always just talked about oh, because her doing you hear it. Lizzie Borden but you hear the axe, yeah. her mother forty the wax. The other weird thing is, in here you find out what that song was supposed to be sung in tune to. Oh, what was it? It's like a like a circusy type song. It's that ta ra ta boom tie, ta ra ra boom That's the tune. Well, I mean, sounds too happy to me. They didn't have televisions, Catherine. <laughs> they had to entertain themselves somehow. Again, thank you for cable. But it was fascinating to see the evidence and the investigation that took place in the 19th century. Uh, so I can't say I learned something new with this read, too. Although at times when reading, it was a little bit too much with some of the graphic descriptions. But I mean, I do think also, like Patty said, it was written with teens in mind. So I don't think it's as graphic as it could have been. Although I was surprised by the actual crime scene photos. Yeah, I... I don't read a lot of true crime because I can't handle the the graphic gore stuff. I'm surprised you picked that because you are not uh, you are also not a a graphic person to an extent. But I mean, I can handle it as long as yeah, they don't go into too many yeah. details. And it, I was hoping with a teen title, that's true. It is easier not, to read. Like they did like, not put the crime scene photos of her father because I don't know how they would have been able to hide that. Like, even, like, describing it, because they describe what happened, like... To his face. To his eye. (laughs) Like, for some reason, eyes to me is where I'm like, nope, I don't. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Which, oh, God, eyes, I I nope out hard on eyes. Yeah. I was like, ew. (laughs) There's an eyeball killer, and I just can't, uh, mm, nope. And I knew better than to read this one during mealtime. Right. (laughs) Sarah, I think you have one more, right? I do, and this is about another woman that caused some harm, much like Lizzie was accused of. But this is about uh, Typhoid Mary, and the name of the book is Terrible Typhoid Mary, A True Story of the Deadliest Cook in America, written by Susan Campbell Bartoletti. And if you have not heard of Typhoid Mary, she was a cook who worked, worked for wealthy families, and she also was accused of, she denied it, being a typhoid carrier, and pretty much scientifically she was a typhoid carrier. She said she never had typhoid in her life. But typhoid was something that um, most people could get and either it killed them or they recovered from it. But some people, like Mary, could get it and not really get sick from it, but carry it around and spread it to other people. And because she was preparing food for people, they were sometimes... Apparently with her hands. Well, yes, that's how you cook. So she was <laughs> giving people typhoid. She just refused to stop being a cook. And uh, yeah, several people were ended up sick and some even died from the typhoid that Mary is accused of passing along to them. So it talks early about how, you know, the, the a doctor involved um, 
took steps to kind of isolate the cases and figure out what the common source was and narrow it down to Mary. And when he went and talked to her about it, she was completely offended and insulted and tried to run away, ultimately got caught, put in basically a prison, not really a prison, but like forced to live by herself on a little island with, I mean, there were other people on the island, but she was in a house alone and um, stay away from people. And when she eventually was able to get free, as long as she promised not to cook, she cooked again and got more people sick, unfortunately. And she cooked under a different name. She knew what she was doing is yes, what got me. But if you read it, you understand, like, being a cook was the most money that she was going to get. She didn't have a husband. She didn't have any other sorts of income. And she, yes, you said, I know when we talked about this before, she could have been a maid. She could have done the laundry. Yes. But she would not have made as much money as she could have washed make. her hands. Yeah. She didn't under, she didn't believe the science. And she thought that that was the best she could do was to try to make money being a cook. And she didn't, in her mind, she never had typhoid. This wasn't her fault. I thought it was interesting because, again, a story that to me, like the story you had talked about, Patty, was very still relevant today because we are living in an age where there are people who question science, don't necessarily believe when somebody comes and tells them something, and maybe that's harmful or Maybe should we lock them on an island? You know, so it's kind of, there are no straightforward answers, I don't think, for Typhoid Mary or necessarily for people today, but still relevant, I think. And I think that part of the problem was when the doctor and other doctors went and talked to Mary, they talked down to her. Oh, they were not nice. And I think that that immediately put a wall up so they weren't, you know, she wasn't going to hear what they had to say. So maybe there's a lesson in there for us if we're trying to convince people of whatever you think, because I don't want to get into it, about medical situations today, and I'm sure you can imagine a few. Maybe when you talk to them, like, let's approach it with respect. The and, end. And wash your hands. And always wash your hands. Before you stick them in your ice cream. <laughs> Before you cook food for people. Well, the reason that people got sick from the ice cream is because unlike the other things, you don't cook it. Don't so cook there's it. not, you know, that um, the germs don't get a chance to be like cooked away. Oh. Right. The she ice cream. just stopped making ice cream with her hands. I don't know if you cook much, but you use your hands. I just say you don't need to stick your hands yeah. in the ice Every cream. Every time she says that, I'm like... I'm picturing her using her feet <laughs> to, to cook. I'm like, how does this work without your hands? Just use your use face. Stick your face in that bowl and mix. <laughs> Do you think she was actually mixing it with her hands? <laughs> yes. I'm pretty sure she I had think a, she used a utensil. She had a spoon. They've been around a minute. No, I think she just refused. She didn't like this either. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> My mental image of Typhoid Mary is amazing. So what are we reading next time, Catherine? Well, I'm actually going with something more humorous. I feel like we've maybe gone a little dark and depressing this episode and maybe even the last episode. Yeah. So let's go with something funny. Yay! It's Not My Problem by Kiara Smith. It's a funny story about Aideen who, though she has problems of her own, starts helping to fix her classmates' problems, which kicks off a semester of traded favors, ill-advised hijinks, and 
even an unexpected chance at love. Because you can't have YA without love. No, indeed. Unless it's nonfiction. This has been another episode of Spill It by the Gwinnett County Public Library. I'm Catherine. I'm Patty. And I'm Sarah. And we want you to join us next time as we spill the tea and have a few laughs on the funny pages of Not My Problem. Remember to like, review, and subscribe. And until next time, keep reading. <laughs>